I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat story, I got a phone call from one of the Prime Minister's senior aides, a guy in his late 60s, and he said, Julie, now that you're a minister for ageing, I want you to dress appropriately. <laughs> I said, I don't know what you mean. He said, well, out with the power suits, no Imani, I want you to wear cardigans. <laughs> Drawing a line and moving on is something that's always come easily to today's guest. After 20 years as a lawyer, she moved into politics and topped off a spectacular 20-year career in her dream job as Australia's first female foreign minister. I am, of course, talking about Julie Bishop. I was lucky enough to sit down with Julie at this year's Women in Focus conference, which is part of ComBank and was set up to promote the growth of women in business. Here's what Julie had to say. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Julie. It's a real thrill to be here and to meet you professionally. We've met uh, a couple of times briefly. Thank you for sharing your lessons after politics. I promise you all we won't talk too much about politics. But given what I do, I just need to ask you one question. <laughs> we all know the fallout from the leadership spill writ large, but you were sharing your story about a lesson learned through life and that you really must love what you do. I couldn't help but think that you loved being foreign minister and yet... The way it worked out, you felt obliged to run for the leadership because you didn't feel you could live without giving that a go. You didn't want to always be the deputy. But do you think in hindsight you never really played the politics of it because you just were so in love with being the foreign minister, given the challenges that that brought you? The role of foreign minister is one of great privilege. It is an honour to represent Australia on the world stage. Our country is held in very high regard. Our views matter. Our perspectives are sought out by leaders around the world. And Australia is highly respected as an open, liberal democracy committed to freedoms and the rule of law. And we're an open, export-oriented market economy. And our goods and services are of such high quality that are sought around the world. Australia really is a significant global nation and to be able to represent Australia was an immense privilege. So of course it was difficult to take the risk of losing it because I knew that if I were not elected leader it would not be good for the party or the new leadership or the new cabinet for me to continue on. And so I realised I was making a big gamble but because it is a numbers game, isn't it? Totally. It comes down to numbers, yes, the cast-iron law of arithmetic. And I believed that it was the right thing to do. And nobody's irreplaceable and um, somebody else, of course, takes on the role. But I also thought that after 20 years it was time to look at something else in my life. 
And I left at a time of my choosing, you know, I wasn't thrown out, I didn't lose my seat. And uh, from that point of view, I was very proud to leave in the way that I did. And I was pleased that Maurice Payne took on the role as um, foreign minister because we've now had two female foreign ministers and that I'm particularly proud. You are a trailblazer without question and, and certainly I think the women of Australia were disappointed on your behalf. You talk about 20 years in law, 20 years in the public sector and 20 plus years as a private citizen. I have to say there's a lightness in your being <laughs> and you are, I think, unshackled and freer. You gave it a go to be the Prime Minister, but I don't know if your heart was really in it because the transition has been so relatively quick. Well, that's what I do. I move on. You move on? I move on. I draw a line and I move on. I don't do regrets. I don't you know, look back and say, what if? There's no point. That's wasted energy. Uh, what I wanted to do in standing was to give the party room options. Two were already in the field and I thought, well, I'm the most experienced. I've been in John Howard's cabinet, Tony Abbott's cabinet, Malcolm Turnbull's cabinet. I've been the deputy for 11 years. I've been the foreign minister for five years. I wanted to give the party room alternatives, that it just didn't have to be a contest between two. And so uh, I ran. But, you know, three-cornered three contests are always tricky and I knew that as well. But I don't think I could have lived with myself if I had just stayed on and never given it a go. And I did, and I'm really pleased that I did. I think the women of Australia mourned your departure from federal politics more than you did. You moved on a lot quicker than we did. Well, that's very kind of you to say. But it's, it's a way of, you know, coping, of, of moving on. And I have had some wonderful opportunities post-politics. And now I have the time and the energy to devote to issues about which I feel really passionate. I'm the chair of the Telethon Kids Institute, which is a paediatric child health research institute in Western Australia. Amazing place. I've joined the International Advisory Board of the Human Vaccines Project. This is groundbreaking. And you've it, just be, I've been appointed Chancellor of ANU. Yeah, I'm the incoming Chancellor of Australian National University. So these are areas that really energise and excite me and I can do it in my own time, my own pace, which is about 110 miles an hour, <laughs> kilometres, and I'm really enjoying it. One thing that has always been noticed by others, men and women, is your innate sense of style. Where did that come from? It's innate. <laughs> <laughs> Boom tish, Sandra. <laughs> Uh, no, but you have to love it. But is it fair I'm, that you criticise for it? Well, I've always been interested in fashion. My earliest memories are of lying on the floor in our lounge room, watching my mother cutting out a Vogue pattern for a beautiful ball gown that she was making. And I was just transfixed how she transformed this heap of tulle and lace into the most glorious dress. I've told Edwina McCann that it was a 1959 Vogue pattern and she thinks that that's amazing that women in Australia, because Vogue only came to Australia in 1960, 1959, so it, um, it was a very early passion of mine. And I also think it comes from being the third of three daughters. I was so over hand-me-downs. <laughs> that I wanted to strike out with my own style and so I became very determined very early on as to what I would wear and the manner in which I'd wear it. And I took that into my professional career. I mean, I was a lawyer for 20 years, so I dressed appropriately, and then into politics. And I didn't think that it would be 
appropriate or real if I suddenly changed my dress style. But I have a confession to make. When I became the Minister for Ageing, I got a phone call, true story, I got a phone call from one of the Prime Minister's senior aides, a guy in his late 60s, and he said, Julie, now that you're a Minister for Ageing, I want you to dress appropriately. Sensible I shoes? <laughs> I said, I don't know what you mean. He said, well, out with the power suits, no Amani, I want you to wear cardigans. <laughs> And this is before Michelle Obama made cardigans fashionable. And I'm thinking, do I have to take fashion advice? Well, you know, it's politics, OK. So for a while there, I dressed in bright, colourful cardigans. But anyway, when I went into education and then other roles, I decided that I wasn't going to let anyone tell me how I should dress. So I dressed according to my passion, my interest, my style. And, yeah, it brought a lot of criticism, which I found quite amusing, actually. You know, you'd look at the, <laughs> these people giving you fashion advice, really. And, <laughs> and yet I also turned it into a positive because our fashion industry is a significant part of the Australian economy. How significant? Well, at least $12 billion to the Australian economy, probably $15 billion. About 200,000 people are directly employed, about 600,000 indirectly employed in fashion. And our fashion designers are among some of the best in the world. And if we're able to promote their talents overseas, it presents a much more sophisticated image of the Australian economy. And sure, you know, we're mining and resources and energy and agricultural exporters, but we also have a sense of style and creativity and innovation that is beautifully expressed through our fashion designers. So I unashamedly adopted hashtag fashion diplomacy and used our network of high commissions and embassies around the world to promote Australian designers but also the products that would go into our fashion whether it be leather or wool or pearls or diamonds or gold whatever it is cotton linen that Australia produces so well and we had some remarkable results and so many significant people business people overseas would say I had no idea Australia had such a vibrant fashion industry so, well, then I got dubbed the Minister for Fashion. <laughs> but but I, I think I collectively we can say, I think I can say confidently, we admire a man who looks sharp and dresses well. But one of the advantages of being a woman is you can kind of indulge in it a little bit because we claim to own the space. And yet it's the first thing that gets picked on. Why? When can we change that? How can we move past the negative? It's interesting. I have a sister who um, could not be less interested you know, we're from the same family. Believe me, we are. And she could not be less interested in fashion. And so it's quite a contrast. So I'm not suggesting it's um, an essential part of being a woman. It's just who I am. So I think... But the du double standards in judgment are, are never-ending. Yeah, well, that, that's just not confined to fashion, believe me. The double, standards, <laughs> the double standards are sometimes breathtaking. And I'm sure that there are many women in this room who could tell numerous stories about what it's like being the only woman in a room full of men or having a standard applied to you that's not applied to others or an expectation of you that is not applied to others. Uh, so we just learn to rise above it. It's how you manage that kind of setback and I think that's what I learned. You just keep going on, be true to yourself, ignore the critics. Of course, if there are people whose opinions you respect, if they raise issues with you, take it on board, learn from it. But there is so much white noise out there, so much criticism, particularly on social media, Forget it. Let it wash over you. It's just not worth wasting a moment on it.
We'll linger on the double standard for another second, only because I think the example is profound, and I mentioned it to you earlier. Um, your critics would argue that when you left politics, the red shoe was symbolic of your end of political tenure, and you donated that to the... Australian Museum of Democracy. Correct. But you, <laughs> your, your critics would argue, really, did you um, reduce your political career to a symbolic red shoe? And yet two male politicians donated dress apparel to the same institute. One was John Howard and his tracksuit, <laughs> and the other was Tim Fisher and his hat. And yet somehow they weren't considered negatives, but your red shoe was. Oh, but likewise, uh, the red shoe became a very popular exhibition. The Australian Museum of Democracy, which is in old, housed in old Parliament House in Canberra, has uh, memorabilia and artefacts and, and a whole range of political material for a permanent exhibition. And then they have <laughs> short exhibits every now and again. They contacted me after that press conference where I was standing in a sea of black suits and I just happened to have a very sparkly Dorothy pair of red shoes on in Wizard of Oz. And the photographer, Alex Ellinghausen, took... It was quite an extraordinary shot. He must have been on the ground. But anyway, he took a shot of my shoes um, surrounded with black suits and it went viral. And that's why the Australian Museum of Democracy contacted me because they said the reaction on social media from women saying, you know, here is Australia's foreign minister resigning from the role and she was the first woman to take the, the job. She's the only woman to have ever contested the leadership for the Liberal Party. She's leaving politics wearing a fabulous pair of red shoes what is that saying to women? Well, I wanted it to say to women, you can be whatever you want to be. You can be empowered, you can be free, independent and strong. So I thought, OK, John Howard's donated his tracksuit. I'll donate my red <laughs> shoes. The point is this. It was the most popular exhibition they've ever had and I was only meant to um, have them on loan for three months and at the end of the three months they said they'd never had so many people come along, particularly women, school children, young school girls. girls, young girls come along and read the story. And so they asked if I would give them to them permanently. So <laughs> I handed them over and it's the only time I ever wore them, that one day. <laughs> and, and you still lament the loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let's just do some quick-fire questions. Early role models? Uh, my mother, very much a role model. She uh, wanted to be a lawyer, but she left school at 17 because her mother was ill and it was after the war, so she went home to look after her mother and then she got married at 21 and worked on the family property. And then in her late 40s, uh, she was complaining one day to me and I was a sulky 17-year-old university student. She was complaining about the fact that she'd never had a life outside the family. And I said, why don't you go and get yourself a job? And she thought that was pretty cruel because she'd 
didn't had a job. education and her job was, you know, raising um, four kids. And in typical fashion, I sat down with the local newspaper and went through, went through, went through the classified ads and I found a job. And I said, here, here's a job for you. Surprisingly, there was a job for a woman just like my mother. It was in an aftercare activity, after school activity centre for children whose parents worked. And so she took on the job, she got the job, and I had so much admiration for her. She then worked her way up through the Department of Community Services. She became a, a leader in the Department of Community Services. She then went into local government. She ended up as a local mayor. And she really was a trailblazer, so I admired her enormously. But she always brought us up to believe, I had two older sisters and a younger brother, that we could do anything. If we set our heart to it, we could do whatever we wanted to do. And she proved that for me. Best politician in the Australian political landscape right now, and why? Uh, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister. <laughs> Don't tell us what you think we want to hear. <laughs> Oh, it's like Pavlov's dog. You just, you just do that. Um, politics aside, the best politician, the art well, of being a politician. Um, no, I'm serious. Scott Morrison, he won an election that very few gave him, uh, gave him a chance of winning. I thought he would win. I actually said in my um, speech announcing that I wouldn't be recontesting the seat of Curtin that I felt comfortable about leaving politics because I was confident that Scott Morrison would win the election. And people didn't believe me, but he did. So I think in terms of um, political skill, Scott Morrison. Best women's leader and why? In any industry? Best women's leader? Oh, there are so many in, uh, in so many fields. I mean, I've, uh, I've always admired Natasha Stott-Despoyer as a political leader, uh, but also the work that she's doing in um, combating domestic violence. I have a great deal of admiration that she's still in that public service driving um, change for community. There are many women who are heading up research institutes. I come from Western Australia. Fiona Wood does amazing work over there. The Telephone Kids Institute was founded by Fiona Stanley, who's been an Australian of the year. She's just in, in global terms without peer. So Australia has many extraordinary women doing great things. Our challenge, of course, is to see more women at the CEO, COO, CFO level. And there's a, a, a government report from our... Uh, the government's gender equity agency. And it showed that while there are, and this is taking a snapshot across the major companies in Australia, while there are a significant number now of women in middle management, uh, there are very few women CEOs. There are very few women leading the major corporations in Australia. So we need to continue to educate people about the benefits of female leaders. As opposed to quotas? Quotas... Would I mean, you're going to an guarantee impact, an outcome. But it's not the outcome you want. I don't know a woman who would want to lay claim to being appointed to a position because she was a woman. Women want to be appointed because their merit, skill, talent, experience and ability is recognised. I believe in targets. I really do believe that you need to have a, a culture in place that says, OK, we've got five positions available. Um, we must at least have women's names to consider. And we did that in Cabinet. Malcolm Turnbull introduced a target of 50%, surprise, surprise, of women appointed to government boards. And there are about four or 5,000 positions available on various federal government boards across every portfolio. And too often, ministers would come to Cabinet with a list of names for appointment to, you know, the National Library or the Wine and Brandy Corporation, whatever it, whatever it was. And invariably, they were the names of men. 
because they're the names that have been put up, they're the names that are out there, they're the people that are known. So we said as a cabinet, no, you will go back and come forward with 50% male, 50% female names. You just have to work a lot harder to find the women who are prepared to put their hand up or, in fact, um, are even discovered to have had the qualifications and the experience. And it worked. So by the time I left Cabinet, we were at about... Well, I know the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade was 50-50. Uh, some other departments were much lower than that, but I think overall we were at about 46% in going north. So it, it did work. I think a lot of women tire of the gender issue, but the reality is we can't stop talking about it till we reach parity. The gender pay gap details have just come out recently. Uh, there's still a 14% gender pay gap. We have to work an extra 59 days a year to come close or match it. What do you think we need to do? How can we fast track it? I think there has to be a much greater awareness of what is actually going on. I was at a financial services conference yesterday and a number of women raised the issue of superannuation, the impact on women from having to take breaks from the workforce to have children or to care for parents or uh, for various reasons. They don't have the, you know, the continual trajectory that men generally have and how we can adapt our laws. And I think it's important that um, women raise these issues and the impact on them because it does affect the nation's productivity. It, it does. But also we have to be armed with the evidence that shows that women's participation will lift our prosperity, will lift our economic growth will ensure that Australia continue to, continues to have the standard of living to which we believe we're entitled. You are a fascinating woman. I love the fact that you, A, have done so much on the world stage, the Australian political stage. You've elevated the tone and bar for young women, I think, across the country. They've now been able to see what's possible and do it with flair and dash. Um, and you make no apologies for it, which is, which is wonderful. You're pretty excited yeah. about the future, I can tell. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about what's on my plate and I, as long as I can continue to be healthy and, and fit, both mentally and physically, I can take on a pretty punishing workload and that energises me. It keeps now, me it, going. With no disrespect, you're not a spring chicken anymore. How do your knees and hips and ankles still keep going? They are just working. Yep. Um, I do yoga. I do yoga in the mornings and I run as often. I went for a lovely run this morning, got lost around New Farm. I have no sense of direction, which is a problem. <laughs> well, at this, at this age, it's an even bigger problem, I think. I'm always busy and I think that that keeps me very, very fit and healthy. The travel requirements of a foreign minister are quite intense. If you were to do your job properly for Australia and attend all the conferences and meetings and visit the countries that you should, it is non-stop. And I was also the deputy leader, and I think it's the first time we've ever had a foreign minister who's also been the deputy leader. So I had domestic responsibilities, you know, to visit people's electorates and fill in for the prime minister when um, he couldn't do various things, but I also had an international responsibility. So travel was just a constant. And there were times when we'd go, we'd land in a country and then sleep on a plane overnight, land in the next country, sleep on a plane overnight, and it'd be days before you slept in a proper bed. But you still had to be on and active and focused all the time. Secret to jet lag. 
I do put it down to the running and I would arrive in a country and of course I would have had a security detail there in advance and that'd work out a run. And it was a great way to see a city as well or see a, an area because otherwise it was airport, car, hotel, conference room, car, airport, home. And so if I'd go for a run in the mornings, I'd see a city waking up or I'd see people going to work or out doing their Pilates or whatever it was. And I also would take the opportunity to have a number of the young staffers from the Australian Embassy or the Australian High Commissioner come with me. And that was a terrific way to get to know them as well. And, you know, they, they loved having a chance to run with the Foreign Minister and fill my ear with all their ideas on how they'd change the world. So it was, uh, it was just a great uplifting thing to do. Are you a big drinker? No. No, I mean, I don't drink on planes, ever. And I don't drink when I'm going to make a speech. And I would never drink if in during parliamentary sitting weeks because you never knew when you'd be called upon to do something. And I always wanted to be absolutely in control. Oh, believe me, I love a French champagne along with the rest of us, but I am pretty controlled. But the discipline that you, you employ every day has really been a tremendous part of your success, hasn't it? I think discipline is absolutely vital. I, I am hopeless when it comes to chocolate. I'm completely and utterly I can undisciplined. Tell. No, completely. <laughs> I mean, a family Cadbury dairy milk, not a problem. One sitting. So, uh, apart from that in my life, yes, I, I lead a pretty disciplined life because I think in order to do what I want to do and achieve at the level I want to achieve, I've got to be in control. Order, structure are important. Mm. Yes. We have a question down the front. You piqued my curiosity around creating awareness, um, and this was in conversation around um, the pay gap and around equality and that sort of thing, and then talking about you know how women stop to do the family thing, and men quite often um, will take the the role of being the the you know breadwinner. Yeah, breadwinner. So my question is around what is the awareness that us women need to know? Because I know that there's like two perspectives. There's the perspective of the female and then there's the perspective of the organization. Now, we might be in a room full of women who are both roles and in both perspectives. So my question is, what is it, what's the awareness that we need to create around um, not feeling like we're less than? I'm talking about awareness on the part of the organisation to appreciate that investing in a female talent is worthwhile. Uh, it's different from investing in male talent because there are different life experiences, different um, aspects, different perspectives, but that it is worth their while in every aspect, financially, um, for productivity purposes, for morale in the firm, it's worth it. And let's face it, uh, no nation can reach its potential unless it fully engages with and embraces and harnesses the talents and skills and abilities and ideas of the 50% of its population that's female. But the rigidity of the current paradigm needs to change. I mean, we had the lovely imagery last week of the Speaker in the New Zealand Parliament bottle-feeding a baby. So if you're encouraging business and enterprise to be more inclusive, you cannot do it with the same roadmap. Well, see, that's why Parliament um, is often seen as such a, a boys' club, because the traditions and cultures and environment uh, was created at a time when there were only male members of Parliament. And change takes time. And so now you have um, 
a significant number of women in Parliament and we are changing things. I mean, there's a creche at Parliament House that would have been unheard of. There are uh, opportunities for women to bring their babies into the house to breastfeed. I mean, could you imagine, when, when I started 20 years ago, that would have been absolutely unheard of. So critical mass is important. The more women who are there, who recognise what needs to be done and convince their male colleagues, and, and there are plenty of men who appreciate um, the issue, then there will be change. Yes, it takes time, but changing cultures, changing attitudes often does, but it's worth it. Do you think that with the rise of the next generation coming on, that, that change will happen at a more rapid pace and awareness will probably move a lot quicker? I would, I would think so. It's been a snail's pace to date. But also the millennial generation about whom I, refer, about whom I spoke earlier uh, also see things differently and social inequality, and that would include uh, gender inequality, is a matter of great concern to them and far more... That, a matter of focus than perhaps previous generations. Let's hope through demand they will drive change and a better outcome. We've got another question down the back here. Uh, my name's Carolyn Morris. I'm the CEO of YMCA Victoria. And uh, we're talking about equality. And it's been really interesting at the YMCA. We've just put an ad up for a GM of IT. We've got 87 applicants in the first day, which is fabulous. Only one woman. So what do we do about that? And I think that's a, a question of STEM and getting uh, girls into it. I'm, I'm surprised by that outcome. Um, that's extraordinary, isn't it? There has been a, a lot written and spoken about attracting more women into science, technology, engineering, maths and the like. And I've seen some fantastic initiatives to uh, promote these subjects among women. And there are some extraordinary women in startups, uh, in technology companies and acting as you know, chief technology officer in some big companies as well. Again, it's a question of critical mass, but I'm not sure that girls are as encouraged to do those subjects at school. And it's got to start in primary school. Uh, you know, if you're not in love with maths in primary school, you're not going to suddenly fall in love with it at secondary school and then, you know, worse than that, suddenly decide I'm going to be a mathematician when you go to university. It just doesn't work that way. So I think we have to do a lot more in our early um, primary years to inspire and motivate and excite young girls about doing uh, maths subjects and same for parents if they want to see their girls have equal opportunities then mums and dads should be encouraging their children to learn coding before they can speak English so I'm told. <laughs> learn to code. Hi Julie, thank you very much on behalf of all of us and on behalf of the women of Australia. I'm Ariane Barker, the CEO of Scale Investors. Um, I'm very encouraged also by what you've just spoken on about women in STEM and startups. We focus solely on investing in those companies that have women leaders in those disciplines because we see the economic opportunity. On behalf of my daughter, who asked me to ask you, taking the role at ANU, um, she's applying at the moment. And so for her, during this she crucial time... She wants me to get her into ANU. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, no, she doesn't. She's, um, she's, she'll get there anyway. She'll get there, hopefully, on her, in her own way, as we all do. Um, she was interested to understand why you took that role, and I think it would be very interesting to understand your views further on the STEM disciplines in a nonpartisan way, because there's also an interesting cross-thread regarding the different party lines and supporting women. I loved being the Minister for Education in 2006-2007, and in that role... As the Federal Minister for Education, I had a great deal to do with ANU. It's the only university in Australia that was established by the Federal Government back in the 1940s, and so it truly is 
our national university. And I would turn to ANU more often than not to announce a policy or to get research done or to assist me as minister at the time. And I saw ANU very much as the federal government's university, whereas other universities are creatures of state governments or private universities. So I had a connection with ANU, even though I'm not an alumna of ANU. And then when I became foreign minister, I saw the power of education in, uh, in promoting Australian values and prosperity around the world. And in particular, I established the New Colombo Plan, which was a foreign policy initiative to give young Australian undergraduates the opportunity to live and study and undertake work experience in one of 38 countries in our region. And it took a lot of negotiating with other countries to encourage them to open up places at their universities, jobs in their businesses and, and government departments and NGOs for Australian students. And I saw it as a really powerful form of diplomacy and having young Australian ambassadors learning new skills, new perspectives, understanding other cultures, understanding Australia's place in the world and understanding countries in the region and even working in their businesses and their, their different entities and coming back to Australia with those perspectives and connections and networks that would last a lifetime. We started it in 2014 and by the end of 2019, 40,000 Australian students will have lived, studied and worked overseas under the new Colombo plan. So I see the transformative power of education very, very clearly. So when the opportunity arose and I was asked to be Chancellor of ANU, I thought long and hard about the time commitment. But because I was so excited about what ANU does in terms of its research and its public policy, and I know the university so well, and I'm so excited to be connected to the students and the, the faculty, that it was an obvious fit for me. And I have an ambition to make sure that ANU is not only the top university in Australia, but um, in the top 20 uh, without question overseas. I mean, we're a top 20 economy. We should have at least one university that is considered in the top 20 worldwide. So I have great ambition for what I think is one of our most significant institutions. It's been a pleasure. Julie Bishop, thank you. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.